All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. You make your way to your seats. Oh, yeah, I'll have to read the, the caption there. The, Ethan put that on there. Yeah. All right, I'll go ahead and we'll open in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for today that uh, we can come to you. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we would rely on you for all knowledge and understanding, and we'd also realize, Lord, that we do not have the strength or the skill or the mastery to take on all of the challenges that we face in life, that even for those things, we must rely on you, Lord, that as we see in the life of Job and his response to um, adversity, some wonderful traits, and we also see in ourselves some of the things, of the, the traps that even those of us who find ourselves strong and, and willing to persevere and accept tough times, that even then we, we can fail. And I pray, Lord, we would be encouraged by that and at the same time just be more reliant upon you. Pray these things in your son's name, amen. I'm gonna go back and review real quick 38 and 39, and then we'll get to the behemoth. And Ethan did some artwork for us, and we'll read the little caption. It's, it's, there's no way you're gonna be able to read that from back there. I can hardly read it from here. So, But last week we were looking at Job 38 and 39, and 38 and 39 were the initial response of God to Job. 38... Uh, Chapter 38, starting in verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will instruct you, and, or I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then he launches into, God himself launches into descriptions of uh, created nature, both the solar system and then creatures that man runs into and basically says, Job, you're acting as though you know everything and you have all this knowledge that you would actually be able to come to me and tell me what should happen. And you don't even understand fully the world around you. And that's what we saw, his, his 38 verse two, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then God launches into that. He launches into the description of all these different, specifically towards the end, it's just all about all these different animals that God has created and God explains how each one of them acts and interacts with the world around them and their either need or lack of need of man and Job's perfect understanding of these things is, is incredibly lacking. So how is it that Job himself can complain to God as though one who actually knows and understands all things? He doesn't. You remember uh, the, the Elihu was, who was the youngest. There were the three friends and then there's Elihu. And Elihu does state that, you know, among your midst is one who has all knowledge and all wisdom and understanding. And, and we notice here that God is, has accused Job of that same presumption that Job somehow understood all things, that he thought he could go to court with God and defend himself against God. It's just a good reminder that, that nobody in Job, the characters we've been introduced to, the, the people, none of them are without fault. Job's friends, especially Elihu, doesn't even get dealt with 
After he speaks, he's, it's, he's totally lost. His friends are going to get dealt with by the end of the book here. And Job himself is now being dealt with. And we look at Job as being the one who is in the right. Job hadn't done anything wrong to be punished. And, and he speaks truth about who God is. But he presumed that he actually had enough understanding to take on God. Starting in verse 40, or chapter 40 then, we enter in, the Lord speaks again here, and he's going to make a new statement to Job, a new complaint he has against Job. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. This is... God rebuking Job Job for finding fault with God's plan and God's understanding of things. And even beyond just the knowledge, but the actual case of what took place here is beyond Job's knowledge. We've said several times, chapter one and chapter two, where God and Satan have a conversation is is unbeknownst unbeknownst to Job what actually happened there. This is actually a spiritual battle that took place between God and Satan. Spiritual being, it happened in the spirit world. It wasn't a physical battle. It was God Almighty in heaven when the angels are all presenting themselves to him. Back in chapter one, and Satan is there, and God points out, have you seen my servant Job? No one is this righteous. God enters into a conflict with Satan here, and that's what's played out. Between chapter 3 up to chapter 38 is that conflict between God and Satan plays its way out. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual conflict. Job, in speaking of what he doesn't know and doesn't understand, has entered into that spiritual battle. And I think that is why we're going to see these two creatures that are described here brought forward. Not that these are are fake creatures or spiritual creatures or they represent some spiritual idea, but that they are physical, real, live, honest-to-goodness animals in the creative world that have some representation beyond just the physical realm. So we're going to look at that. Verse three, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I will add nothing more. So Job admits after the first two chapters of God's rebuke of him and God laying the case for you're without knowledge, Job is like, okay, I understand. You're right. Shouldn't have said anything. God's not done yet though. It's like, Great, but here we go. We're going to keep rolling here, Job. Now, when Job says he's insignificant, that is not the same as worthless. It just means he's without significant input because he lacks the knowledge and understanding and we're going to see the power of God and the ability to deal with things on the spiritual world. Job does does not come up to that level. God can rest his case against Job for his sin of presumption But beyond that, Job thought he had the knowledge and understanding in order to bring a case against God. He thought he could enter into that spiritual world and actually come out on top. 
And we see that in the beginning, or in verse six, as Job now, or I'm sorry, God now makes a continued case against Job. Then the Lord answers Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man. That's a repeat of what we saw back two chapters ago. And I will ask you and you instruct me, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with his voice? Or with a voice like his. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that you own right, your own right hand can save you. This isn't just, Job, are you strong enough? That's, that's part of it. Job, if you're going to enter into this, this discussion with me against me and what I have wrought in your life, if you're going to enter into this spiritual court case against me, understand you don't have the power to do this. You can't look, clothe yourself with the eminence and with the honor and everything it takes And honestly, when it comes down to it, Job, you can't even, you wouldn't even be able to understand the power that it takes for this all to happen. And you can't understand what it is. Now, we see in verse 10 through 14, a description actually that's very similar of what Job makes of himself. If you turn back to Job 31, Job is is defending his integrity. Job 31, verse 16 I have kept the poor from their desire, or if I have kept the poor from their desire, have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. But from my youth, he grew up with me as, as with a father, and from infancy, I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or for the needy, or that the, the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he had not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I had, have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken at the elbow. Job is declaring his innocence in all of those things. He's declaring that he is actually able to stand and do what is righteous and judge appropriately and overcome wickedness. And then Job 19, uh, verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame and I was father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. So he goes through this again, a collection of events in his life where he was actually the one supporting righteous judgment, where he was the one who was overcoming wicked by being good. And that's what God's calling on him here in in chapter 40. Job, you say this is how you are. You're dealing with things on a human level, in a level that is not significant to being in the court of the most high God where the angels are presenting themselves and I challenge the devil. 
That's, he doesn't tell Job that's what's happening, but we know that's what happened. God who was in a spiritual conflict with the devil and soundly thumping him. And Job has presumed that he knew what was going on. One, he didn't know, and two, for man to take on the devil and win or to be able to actually do anything against him offensively is a situation you don't want to take lightly. And I would say, we'll, we'll deal with it, but, but it's not something that we're called to do, to go and offensively attack the devil. So this is a spiritual thing that's going on, and Job was unaware. And he also is, just because he was able to be a righteous judge on this earth does not mean he can stand with God in heaven and righteously judge as well. So that's the, the contents, or the, the context of what we see going on here. And now God is going to introduce this character, the behemoth. And so, again, Ethan did some artwork for me. Um, and you can't see that, but here's Job laying in the dust, sitting in the dust. Here's his three friends. And this is the one with perfect knowledge. It's Elihu, is under the foot of the behemoth. Now, again, there's going to be some challenges here because we don't have perfect knowledge, we don't have an understanding of what existed at the time of Job. We think we have Job nailed down in time frame to that period between Noah and Abraham. And again, Noah actually lived almost to the time of Abraham. Um, those of you who have been to the ark experience down in Kentucky, you, or have seen that, you understand that it is possible that that the dinosaurs whose fossils we have now made it onto the ark and were preserved, carried through the flood and released, but that the changes in the world and in the environment in which they lived, um, they slowly died off. And by slowly, I mean over hundreds of years. They could be gone for a couple hundred years or so or even slowly dying off during this time period. Location is also an issue. We're probably in the Sinai Peninsula. There's going to be a reference to the Jordan. I, I don't think we're going to say that they were around the Jordan River as much as it is the main river is being referenced here. Or it's being referenced just like the Jordan because um, that's the, uh, the river that the people that were receiving this text would have understood. It's difficult to say. But we don't know what animals were there and what were not. Another challenge here, as you read this, is that there, Job is written in Aramaic. Job is different than any other text we have in, in the Old Testament in that it contains a lot of words that we can't cross-reference with other words in the Old Testament. Um, the word tail, where it talks about his tail here coming up in verse 17 Bends his tail like a cedar. There's a lot of difficulty that goes into that to define exactly what that means. This is probably as close as we can get um, comparing the tail in some way, shape, or form to a cedar tree is probably as close as we can get. But just understand there are some challenges here in translating a book this ancient into Hebrew, then into Greek, 
and then eventually into English. And, and obviously we don't have original manuscripts or manuscripts that are within a couple hundred years of when Job was written. So there's a lot of challenges here. God certainly preserves his word and, and we want to take those things, but we also want to understand that there are some challenges in, in defining exactly what creature this is. Suffice it to say, believing in the inerrancy of scripture as it was originally recorded and then believing that God has preserved his word, I think this is a pretty close description to what we have and clearly we don't have one of these animals walking about the earth today. So verse 15, now behold the behemoth which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength and his loins and his power and his muscles of his belly. He he bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down. In the covert of the reeds and of the marsh, The lotus plants cover him with shade, the willows of the brook surround him. If the river rages, he is not alarmed, he is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? You'll notice he's not asking Job, do you understand this creature? He's instead pointing out one specific trait that this creature has, and it is immense, incredible power. He is the preeminent, powerful being that God has made to walk the earth. And if we look at the fossil record, it probably is. I don't even know. We we were always told these were brontosauruses. And that's terribly wrong to anybody who likes dinosaurs. Does anyone here like a dinosaur expert? Since Ethan's not here. Good. Let's just call it a brontosaurus. All right. So it is a really pretty good description living in the marshes, not able to be moved by the rushing, by the rushing river. Um, not, you can't just go and, and harness the thing. It basically does what it wants to do and everyone knows to leave it alone because it is the most powerful, largest, strongest animal that God created. You can't do battle with the behemoth. Why do you think you can carry out judgment, Job? Why is it that you think as a judge you could make your decree stand? You aren't even the most powerful creature on earth. You don't even, with your power, have the ability to garner the respect of all men. It is interesting, the name behemoth is plural for beasts. And and that would be, we believe, a way of saying he is the beast of beasts the greatest of all the land animals, just pure brute force and created might. Job, you can't even stand up to the the, the strongest creature that I have made. And then we see Leviathan. Amazing description of Leviathan here. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will, you make many supplic- will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will he take forever for a servant? Will you take him forever for a servant? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders barter over, barter, bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? 
Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Just really quick, so far you see the description of Leviathan is not only just a a creature of incredible force, but he's also a creature who there seems to be more of an interaction with him, making a covenant with him, taking him for a servant, play with him as a bird. There's, there's, will you make supplications to him? Will he speak softly to you? There's this more of an interaction going on here, and I think there's a reason for that as we continue, but I just wanted to point that out. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. You will be laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And again, He said enough to make his point. God's going to continue on though. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face around the teeth there is terror? His strong scales are his pride and shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another, no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. And then this is an amazing thing I don't, I don't fully understand. Oh yeah, you can change slides. This is more artwork of, I don't know which dinosaur that is. Does anyone have any idea? Again, Ethan's not here today, but it's a what? It's an ichthyosaurus. So one of the swimming dinosaurs that had short legs, but they're, I think one starred in one of the, Um, Jurassic Park movies. There you go. Um, All right, but this is is the part that's like, wait a second, this is is crazy talk. Um, He sneezes, flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart, wait a second, what was that about breathing fire? Oh my goodness. So, so pretty amazing animal. Back to his power here. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingshots are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp, sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him, he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired, 
Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. The description of Leviathan compared to the description of the behemoth. The behemoth is all about power and confidence and this is an animal that can't be shaken and it just exists and you leave the thing alone. Leviathan is an animal that you interact with and the interaction is that of pure chaos and strength and the ability to rip things apart and he has an opinion about you and you have an interaction with him. There is no fear and he looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Kind of gives us insight into this this creature that God has made. And clearly Job can't do battle with the Leviathan either. And I think what God is saying is, Job, you've done good in your life. You stood up for the innocent and you've judged the guilty rightly, but do you really think you could stand up to pure evil? Do you think you could be in the courts of heaven and stand up against Satan himself? You can't even stand up to the Leviathan, the ultimate of the seas, the chaos and danger that surround him. Interestingly, there is another creature in Babylonian legend that was... um, the mother of all the minor gods. And he is eventually slain by Marduk. In fact, if you, the other places in the Bible where Leviathan is mentioned, Psalm 74, 14, it is you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it to food for the creatures in the desert. Somebody wants to explain to me what they're talking about there. I'd love to hear it. Um, but apparently God at some point slays Leviathan or a Leviathan and feeds the children in the desert. Um, In the Babylonian legends that would have come from similar time period as when uh, Job was written, they also have an understanding of this creature. And it's the creature that eventually in Babylonian legends gets slain by Marduk, the, the overarching big god, and he gets cut up into pieces and fed to the people. Turns out Psalms record such a thing. And there was also, in much the way there, is a, there are, in a lot of cultures, legends of a worldwide flood. And we know the true story. We know the true story of Leviathan, but he's actually mentioned in a couple of different cultures, both the Babylonian culture and then that of uh, the people in the land of Canaan, they would have had a similar picture. In fact, um, okay, who, who knew, and, and it's okay, I'm not going to judge you, who ever played Dungeons and Dragons when they were little? I wasn't allowed to. I had friends that did. So I saw, anybody? Okay. What's the, anybody watched the cartoon growing up of Dungeons and Dragons? Man, you guys all missed out. I know, and Ethan's not here. So, There is a creature in Dungeons and Dragons, the ultimate dragon. He's a seven-headed dragon. One could breathe fire, one of the heads breathed ice and all these things. Anybody familiar with that? Guess not. Tiamat is his name. And that's, Tiamat is based upon Leviathan. So the ancient cultures had this creature that actually existed and it even exists today. Um... Psalm 104, 26, there the ships go to and fro in Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. 
Again, connecting Leviathan with the sea. So we have this, this massive land animal with its power and Leviathan associated with the chaos and the, uh, the actual animosity towards man found in the sea. Then Isaiah 27.1, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan the gliding serpent. Leviathan's not the sword, it's what God is punishing. Leviathan the gliding serpent. Leviathan the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. So who does God punish in the great fateful day? And this is referring to a time at the end of times. This is referring to a time distant future from now. So Leviathan is still around and he's referred to as the serpent. There's a lot of connection between Leviathan and the picture that comes to mind is Satan himself. In fact, in our text, he looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Well, who's the king over all? Who's the king of all? Who's the father of all lies? Who's the father of all liars? Satan. Who's the king of all pride? I think this is a picture of certainly in creation. I'm not saying that Leviathan is Satan and I'm not saying that uh, he's just a spiritual being that didn't ever exist. I think he did exist and I think we do have fossils of creatures that could fit this picture. And I think there's a, at the same time this, this connection to Job you can do bad, you can't even, you don't have the strength of the behemoth to deal with carrying out your judgments and you certainly don't have the ability to take on evil. You can't even take on this, this personification or this creaturefication of evil, it's not a word, of evil that is present in the, in the, the being that is Leviathan. He's the king over all the sons of pride. You can deal with proud people. You can't deal with things on the spiritual realm like I can, Job. You're presuming too much when you say you're not being treated well. So we have then this idea of where, where do we stand then? As, as humans, I just want to take an aside and say, so where do we stand when it comes to dealing specifically with evil on the, in the spiritual realm? Let's turn over to 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. What is our role in dealing in the spiritual world? If Job is known as the only righteous man on earth or, or the, the most righteous man on earth and God's saying, hey, you need to be really careful here. You don't have the strength and you don't have the spiritual acumen to be able to fight evil. You can do it on the earth, but you're talking about things that are beyond your control here. So First Peter chapter five. Verse eight. Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So 
If Peter was around writing at the time of Job, his, or, or, or was a friend of Job, he'd say, hey, Job, realize bad things are happening to you. You just, the way you deal with this is you stay firm in your faith. Understand that bad things do in fact happen, but they accomplish a greater good, and there are others in the world who are accomplishing those things as well. The way we deal with spiritual conflict that we may or may not fully understand is by remaining firm in the faith. Turn over to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, and and we have this picture of the armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist There's that resist picture again. Resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, so you're protected by being good in your behaviors, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and the helmet of salvation. Again, more protection. Who can find fault with God's elect? Romans 8. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the only offensive weapon is actually God's word and what God says. It's not anything in you. And you don't go looking to pick a fight with Satan. You don't go looking to, to find spiritual battles that you get to go engage in. That's not what scripture ever calls us to do. The other place we see a spiritual battle taking place that's, that's uh, where the, the human involved was Daniel himself. And we covered that when, when the angel was trying to couple, come to Daniel and he's battling other angels to get there and it takes time and Daniel's totally oblivious to it and Daniel's not said, so here Daniel, come and help me fight these angels. That's not what our role is. We don't go running around trying to take on Satan and his minions. We don't have the strength of behemoth to overcome behemoth. We don't have the ability to pick a fight with Leviathan. Why do we think we can handle the strength and the ferocity of the spiritual realm as well. Instead, we are to gird ourselves up in truth. We are to stand firm in faith. We have the shield of faith. We have all these things. And if ever an offensive weapon is used, it's the word of God. You remember Job's, the the statement, I'm gonna forget which chapter, 18 or 19, where Job says, but I know that my redeemer lives. Job had a faith in his salvation. He knew that after this life, he would be saved, he would be safe. And that's where he stayed focused and that was a good thing because Job does survive the attack of Satan here. Just as with Leviathan, when Satan brings attacks and tribulations in our life, we respond with faith in God's imminence, God's dignity, God's worthiness, his majesty, and ultimately the execution of judgment in his hands. And that's the case he brought against Job at the beginning of chapter 40, asking Job, are you clothed in eminence, dignity, worthiness, majesty, and can you execute the judgment of your hands? You can't. You have to have faith in me that I will do those things for you. 
And then one more reference in the New Testament, Romans 12. Romans 12, 18 through 21. This is that whole thing when bad things are happening to you, how should we respond? And it applies to Job as well. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You're not on the offensive, Job. You're on the defensive. You're staying firm in your faith, and you're, you're not trying to battle evil with evil. You're actually trying to just trust in God and do good. Continue to do what's right. Stay the course. Leave revenge up to me. There should be, if you really are, think somebody has wronged you, by all means, turn them over to the hand of God. <laughs> Far better to let him deal with it because not only will he deal with it rightly, he has the power to, cover, to, to carry out those judgments and he will be totally righteous and true when he does. And far, far worse for someone who is truly evil, who is truly assaulting you to be faced with God than your wrath. Back to Job, chapter 42 then. Job realizes his sin and he repents. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He was in dust and ashes. He's, he's admitting that this is where I belong, Lord. When I, you compare me to you, the things that you have displayed for me are too wonderful for me. I didn't know, I didn't understand them. Wonderful here isn't, isn't necessarily a good thing. Some things cause us to wonder, just as things that are truly awesome aren't all good. There is the awe, that they inspire awe is what the word really means, and wonder is the same thing here, it isn't. There are things just that are so wonderful. That's not how they use that word here because there's a lot of heavy things that he's just been through. Job here repents. Job here confesses his sin, his presumption. He was wrong in believing that he had a case against God. He was ignorant of what was really going on. He, was, he Job, was powerless to effect a solution and unable to overcome the devil who is behind all of this. Instead, he saw God as the, the, as the reason. He saw God as the agent that was carrying out his pain. And he thought because that and God was also at the same time righteous, he could stand up to him and that God owed him some sort of explanation, believing that Job 
believe that he, Job, had all of the knowledge and understanding he needed in this situation, and he did not. Interestingly enough, as we finish this interaction between Job and God, God doesn't say, and now let me tell you what really happened. We don't know when Job learns of that again. We don't know if he ever does. But even without knowing that, in verse two, he praises God for his sovereignty in all things. Verse three, he admits his guilt. Verse four, he submits to God's knowledge and plans. Verses five and six, he acknowledges and experiences God's sovereignty resulting in his own humility. Not a bad roadmap for how you deal with difficulties in your life. Praise God for his sovereignty in all things. Admit that you yourself are flawed and guilty. Submit to God's knowledge and his plans. And be willing to be humbled by it. Humility isn't debasing yourself to a point where, where you're not of one of worth. It's instead acknowledging where your position is compared to God's. That's humility. It's putting yourself in the right place as underneath something that you deserve to be underneath. And in this case, it's God's sovereignty and his knowledge and his power. Then God turns to Job's friends. It came about after that the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Compared to Job, you got it even worse. You were even further off. Now therefore take your, for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. It's interesting that Job's friends require a mediator between themselves and and God. Really back in Job 1, we have this picture as Job Job 1.5 Job is sacrificing and mediating between God and his children. Again, the time period here, you have to understand that the priest, the the line of Aaron where we see priests in the Old Testament is applicable to the people of Israel in their nation. They are not applicable to, it's not like you can't be a priest unless you're a son of Aaron. We saw that with, with Melchizedek when we studied Genesis. Melchizedek was a priest outside of the line of Aaron. Our own savior, Jesus Christ, our mediator is not in the line of Aaron. He's outside the line of Aaron. Job was acting as a priest and he has that position restored to him here by God himself. God restores him as a priest by saying, you're the one who's going to intervene for your friends here. They don't have direct access to God. A mediator is needed. Job is the one who is now in a right standing with God due to his attitude and actions of verses one through six. Showing the importance of of his actions there. Verse nine, so Eliphaz the Temite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job. So the Lord accepting Job is actually a, uh, was what was needed to be done for him to actually accept his friends. 
So God is true to his word. He accepts Job. He accepts the sacrifice that Job makes on behalf of his friends. And God is merciful to them as well. And then we have the restoration of Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And all of his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. We see the restoration of Job to his proper place in his family and in the society. God has restored him as the mediator for his friends. His priestly duties are restored to him. And his position in his family and and community is restored to him. Then the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than beginning, and he had... 14,000 sheep, he had 7,000 before, 6,000 camels, he doubles those, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys, he doubles those. And then he had seven sons and three daughters. Anyone remember how many kids Job had before? How many kids died? He had 10. How many kids does he get here? Seven plus three, 10. I thought he doubled everything. This is really interesting, right? So if he doubles all the animals, why didn't he double the children? How many kids did did Job have at the end, by by verse 17? How many children does he have? 10 or 20? Or I'm sorry, yeah, 10 or 20. He has 10 children that are alive, right? And 10 who have passed on, who have died. I would argue that he has 20 children, right? I think God doubled his children. And unlike the animals and the beasts that he has, The humans don't just go away. It's not like I have no kids. It's like I did have 10 children. I have 10, seven sons, three daughters. Now he has seven more sons and three more daughters. He he doubles them. And it's interesting that that's part of the blessing that God gives. And I think we discount that somewhat, especially in our society. Um, We see the idea that uh, children can be a burden Right? And I'm not, I'm not talking, we can all be in agreement that abortion is wrong, that it kills a, a child. Um, but even beyond that, our attitude towards children in this society is poor. Our attitude towards children in the church has drastically changed in the last 50 years. Um, not, not everyone in the church, but, but as a whole, those who would claim to be Christians or even evangelical Christians, the value of having children um, is not something that's pursued as wholeheartedly as God makes it out to be here. Um, giving this old man 10 more children as part of his blessing. All too often we, we look at children and we try and in our society and it's crept into the church, we try and decide when, when's the convenient time to have kids how many kids would it be convenient for me to have given my career or my status or when my schooling's done and things like that? We really do put a lot of restrictions on when kids work well in our lives. And I just caution you 
You can certainly look at my own example. And one of the things I look back on is I, I can't help but look back and say, you know what? I think I missed out on a lot of the blessings of God here without pursuing more children. It made good sense early on in my career. Not necessarily as good as God could have given me had I been more open to his will. And, and so I, I just, there's an importance there to the blessing of children and we talked about it back in Genesis even more. But just be very cautious of where your attitudes and actions and your, your life planning comes from. If it's something from the word versus something from our society. But do note that he doubled his children. He went from, Job didn't have 10 children. Job had 20 children by the end of Job. They were doubled. There's a permanence to our children. Just as Job claimed that someday he would see his savior with new flesh and new eyes and look at his redeemer in the flesh. Here we have that same picture that human life goes on for all eternity. It doesn't end just with death. The Old Testament does teach the resurrection. He names his three children here, three daughters, daylight, sweet smelling, and some word that just means a really beautiful color. Um, just the, the enjoyment of life has returned to Job, I think is the main thing being taught there. And then an interesting comment, no, in the land there were no women, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And just it, very interesting in the culture that would have been present during that Noah to Abraham time frame that the daughters are also greatly blessed by their father and he understands the value of them in a way that we don't see. We're just starting to see that as being more commonplace, but for Job, it was normal. After this, Job lived 140 years, so he, that fits that time frame of how long people were living and saw his sons, his grandsons, and his great-great-grandsons is what it ends up being. And then he dies an old man and full of days. But he does die. It's very similar to Genesis where as it listed that first genealogy and he died and he died and he died. Job still ends up dying. And he sees his redeemer today. While we are gathered here, he's, he's in the presence of our Lord and, and enjoying looking at him face to face. Believers must trust that God is in control, not because things go well, but because we can't control the world around us. It's the only way you'll get by. The only way you'll be able to withstand tough things coming into your life is having that knowledge, not hoping in, but actually seeing God's control up till now in your life and knowing that continues when you're faced with something difficult. You can't control the world around you. You don't have that much power. You add in the spiritual battles that take place that we don't see and we're not called to... to uh, be actively engaged in that type of, of offensive warfare. There's not a whole lot we can do other than trust in the Lord and stay firm in our faith, relying on him and knowing his word. We don't have infinite knowledge. We don't have full understanding. Understand that whatever situation you're in, whatever difficulty you're facing, when you think of Job, think of the fact that I don't understand. Don't just think of the fact that 
um, it turned out good for him in the end or that, that he was able to persevere. Think about the fact that I don't have full understanding. I don't have knowledge of everything God's doing right now. And God doesn't owe it to you to tell you. Don't think you can open up his word, flip to a page and say, oh, here it is. Here's why this is happening in my life. God doesn't owe it to you to tell you these things. You can open his word to get an understanding of who he is and his sovereignty and generally how it is he works in our lives. But he doesn't have to tell you the plan. So you have to trust because to do otherwise was the ultimate sin of Job. Job's big downfall was that he thought he had full knowledge and understanding. And we don't have the strength to produce the results we want. You can try and produce the results you want. You can work hard to get things to turn out your way, but understand that you don't have that power. And when dealing with spiritual things, only Christ himself had the ability to take on the devil and win. That battle in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting was a declaration that he did have the ability to take on the devil directly and win. Ultimately, everything's in his control. Without Christ, there is no battling the things that God has brought about in your life. The things that are directly caused by the evil one, you can't fight those. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can totally and completely rely on you. Lord, not to get what we want out of this life, but Lord, that there are things much larger than this life. There's our eternality. Job saw that. We've been given that glimpse even greater in the life of, and death and resurrection of your son, Lord. That that would be our ultimate uh, hope, our ultimate understanding is that Christ died and was raised again for our sins and that by being united with him, we have that hope of someday seeing our redeemer in the flesh, we too being restored to glorified bodies, that we can be granted an understanding of how all things work together. But Lord, we understand it doesn't happen here. And I just pray for those that are struggling, Lord, that you would grant them the faith needed to rely on you, that you would, before those trials hit, help them to understand your sovereignty and why that's so important in their lives. Help them to be built up in your word so that when challenges do come, the verses that, that remind them what it means to take on the evil one, the armor that's needed, that those things will be all built up beforehand, before the trials come, Lord. You promise that we'll face trials, so I pray we would prepare well for it. And when they're here, Lord, we would respond in a way that gives you honor, even if it means humbling ourselves. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.